Hi everyone, David Harris here for Criminal Injustice, and welcome back. It's a new season. For us, that would be season number seven. Can you believe it? Now, as promised, when we began our summer hiatus, we're going to ask you to partner with us to support criminal injustice. As I've always said, it's a labor of love here, but it takes cash too. So we're asking you to join us and give us a little support if you like what we do. You'll notice that we now have a Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash criminal injustice. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. Using Patreon, uh, you can contribute and become a member. I hope you'll consider doing that. And for those who do join and contribute, we'll be offering some content just for you folks. For a start, we're going to offer a series on the criminal justice proposals of the leading candidates for president. Hey, it's almost 2020, and you know that uh, as a criminal injustice listener, these issues could not be more important to the future of our country and who gets elected. That'll have a big impact on the criminal justice system. As always, I'll do the research, I'll put it in context for you, and I'll give you my best read about what I see with each candidate's set of positions. So enjoy and support us if you can. We're glad to be back for season number seven. You are the reason we do this. Many people make their social media posts public. Everybody can see them. So what should we think when we learn that some police officers in some departments have been posting racist messages or memes endorsing violence visible to anyone on the Internet? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. To support the show and unlock extra content and more exclusive benefits, become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice, everyone, and welcome to this first episode of our new seventh season. We're glad you're here, and we're glad to be back after a brief hiatus and reboot. I'm still David Harris, your personal criminal justice nerd and guide to all things in our dysfunctional criminal justice system, and still so happy to have that day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Now, if you use social media, you've surely come across content that you find not to your taste. Not just odd or strange, perhaps, but let's say something that really offends you. In fact, people posting things on social media and using the Internet in general seem more inclined to say things that they might not say to another person or a group of people face-to-face. You can probably think of lots of examples yourself. Too many examples. I came across this video from The Richest. It's a feature piece highlighting and commenting on some really dumb, offensive social media posts. Here's an example. For those who are sensitive listeners, this is about abortion. And also, I'm using this as an example of something offensive, so it is offensive. Listen to the narrator's description of a post by Casey. 
The woman who can maintain a positive attitude in the face of an abortion is either incredibly brave and strong or incredibly stupid. A selfie-loving poster named Casey seemed to be firmly entrenched among the latter group when she proudly flaunted a post-abortion pic with the caption, After abortion and still looking hot as hell. Wherever you might happen to fall on the pro-life versus pro-choice debate, few address a topic as serious as abortion with the careless ambivalence that Casey seems to exhibit here. When a respondent to her post asked her whether the procedure hurt, she happily replied, Nah, I lost like 10 pounds. So what happens when the posts you run across that are offensive and are open to everyone are from police officers? Now, a few years back, an attorney named Emily Baker White, who was then working in a federal public defender's office in Philadelphia, faced this very question. During her investigation of a police brutality claim, she came across a meme which a Philadelphia police officer had shared. The meme showed a police canine trying to run after a suspect, teeth bared, with the caption, quote, I hope you run. He likes fast food. Yeah. I'm sure Emily Baker White was not that easily offended. You really can't be if you're in the criminal defense business, trust me. But she found that image striking. Taken even half seriously, it seemed to take a positive view of the opportunity of using a police dog to inflict injury. Maybe it was a joke, but it made her pause and ask, what else like this from police officers might be out there? Would an examination of social media reveal more, or was this just an outlying one-off? That moment was the genesis for the work we're going to learn about on this episode. Emily Baker White gathered a team of researchers, and they figured out a way to gather thousands of social media posts by thousands of current or former law enforcement officers all over the country. The results are now posted in an online database called The Plain View Project, and Ms. Baker White is with us to explain how the project's database was put together, what's in it, and what, if anything, we might understand from all of this. Emily Baker White is the founder of The Plain View Project. She is an attorney, and before founding the project, she served in the Capitol Habeas Unit of the Federal Community Defender Office in Philadelphia, bringing post-conviction appeals in federal court in death penalty cases. She created The Plain View Project with the assistance of Injustice Watch, a nonprofit multimedia journalism organization, in order to expose social media posts of current and former police officers that might have a bearing on the fitness of the officers to serve and be fair. We've got a link to the Plain View Project up on our website. Emily Baker White, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, now, I described the starting point for your project in my introduction just now. And, uh, um, you know, that, that story of you finding the meme about the police canine. Now, take us back to that moment. Uh, what was that like? What were you thinking? Uh, did you think this might be something that would help your client? Or, or did something else come to your mind? Sure. So I initially searched for the Facebook pages of several police officers. They actually weren't in Philadelphia. Uh, because those police officers may have had a role in the case that I was working on. And when I found public Facebook posts by officers who might have been involved in the case, 
that was important because one of the claims that we were pursuing was a claim that the trial attorney in my client's case had failed to present evidence of systemic police brutality in the neighborhood where my client that could have been relevant to whether he was sentenced to a life sentence or a death sentence. So I went looking for this information in that case specifically because I thought it could help my client. And when I came across the meme with the police dog that you describe, I was struck by it, I think, in part because it was a meme. It didn't appear to be something that the officer had created himself. It appeared to be a meme that he had shared from somewhere. And that made me wonder whether there was a broader community that was sharing images like this online. And with that, uh, you start to uh, look around to see if there is that broader community anywhere. And thanks for correcting me on what you were doing in the first place. Um, the, uh, the broader community shows up in some of your searches. So did that bring uh, um, uh, other questions to your mind, uh, that this might have some kind of larger meaning or there might be some larger sense to this? It did. And over the past number of years, there have been individual news stories about police officers who have posted troubling content on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. And so this wasn't the first time anyone had seen some social media posts like this. Right. But the question that I wanted to answer was a little bit different because it was about scope. And I think what we tried to do in creating the Plainview Project was to figure out how widespread this conduct is without being able to look at the vast majority of it, right? We looked in eight jurisdictions, four uh, cities and then four smaller jurisdictions, to try to find all of the police officers we could on Facebook. And it's important to note how much we did not find. Um, we only found and were able to verify the identities of about one in five officers in those jurisdictions. One in five. Most, most of those officers in those jurisdictions, to my knowledge, don't use Facebook. Uh, I did not find them at all. But still, that one in five meant that we found the Facebook profiles of several thousand police officers. Now, of course, how did we do that? We first uh, went and got rosters of the police officers currently employed by these jurisdictions. And we did that in, in two ways, depending on the jurisdiction. In some jurisdictions, the police departments or uh, local news outlets routinely post and update a list of all of the officers employed by the city. So, so, so in those instances, you know who each of the police officers in those cities or towns are already just from the public record. Correct. In cities that don't have that or in smaller towns where there's not a, a city database posted, you can file a right-to-know request for that information. And we, in fact, did file right-to-know requests uh, with departments to get a list of all of the officers in these jurisdictions. So then you and had so, the rosters. And then you knew who all the police department officers were. What was the next step to building this out? So you search for names on Facebook. But as you can imagine, that is not the 
most efficient way to find someone, especially if the person has an even somewhat common name. And so we found that it was easier to find people uh, by looking through their networks. So if we found a couple officers who had, you know, said they were officers, and then they had a whole bunch of friends who were engaged in conversation with them, it was much easier to find other officers in the department by looking at one officer's friends than it was by cold searching names in the Facebook search bar. I see. But Mm -hmm. Using a combination of those things, we searched for the names of all these police officers as best we could to try to find them on Facebook. And though we did not find close to a majority of any department, we did find a whole lot of police officers. Okay. So let's let's just, I want to stop and be clear here for a second. We're only talking about Facebook. There could be other social media platforms that police officers or other people use. And uh, in the Facebook search, you would typically find about 20 percent of a jurisdiction officer, a jurisdiction's officers on Facebook. Am I right so far? That's correct. Okay, go ahead, please. So the next thing we had to do was ensure that a person who had the name of a police officer in a jurisdiction was actually that same officer. And... There were a couple ways that we verified those identities. The easiest way is that Facebook provides a place for you to state who you're employed by. And many people state who they're employed by right on Facebook. Sure. So works at colon Philadelphia Police Department was by far the most uh, common and easiest way that we would confirm someone's identity. So somebody self-identifies. Yes. So all of our verifications were, were some form of that of self-identification. The second most common way that we verified someone's identity was by capturing a picture of that person publicly posted in their uniform. So many people post pictures of themselves in uniform, and, and that was obviously also sufficient to establish that they were an officer in a given jurisdiction. Other people self-identified in other ways. They might not have had a picture in uniform or have listed listed their employer, but in a conversation, of course, publicly posted, uh, they might have said, well, you know, I have a unique contribution to this conversation because I've been a Phoenix police officer for seven years now, and in my experience, blah, blah, blah. And so even if a person didn't at the front of their profile identify as a police officer, we were often able to find positive IDs of a police officer's identity uh, in looking through their public comments. Okay, so now you've got the police officers identified by using the rosters uh, of the members of the police department. Uh, It's roughly 20% of uh, any department's officers. Um, and so you're not just going out there. I think a lot of people maybe reading a headline about your project might think you're just finding uh, nasty posts and putting them up. This is much more systematic. That's my impression uh, than that. You're, you're, you're trying to be as careful as you can. You're only including officers who have uh, given some indication or have uh, uh, actually identify themselves in some way as members of the department and only then you're going in and searching posts by that person. That's correct. 
Okay. So it with this kind of systematic approach uh, in these eight departments, and, and by the way, why did you select those eight departments? There were two main considerations for why we selected the departments we did. We prioritized communities that were already having conversations about uh, police-civilian relations, and we wanted some semblance of geographic and size diversity. So we didn't want all urban jurisdictions. We didn't want all large or all small jurisdictions. We wanted urban, suburban, rural, um, and we wanted something that looked a little bit like what America looks like. So different places in different parts of the country, different sizes. I think that's important because, I, you know, so often in police stories we hear about the big cities, but uh, the vast majority of departments are smaller uh, in this country than larger, uh, even if the number of officers uh, is greater in cities. So you've got this geographical and size diversity where, you said, uh, folks were already having discussions about community police relationships. So uh, there you are. You search out the posts. In what percentage of the 20 percent are you finding posts that concern you, and why did these posts concern you? So we asked one question of every post to determine whether it should be included in the database. And that one question was, is it possible that this post could affect greater civilian opinions of the police department? So anything that might affect or erode public trust in policing or in a specific officer or in a specific department was relevant to our work. Okay. So if it can do that, you decide to include it and put it up. In, That's correct. All right. And for this 20% of each department, uh, you're finding a certain number of posts that qualify under that criteria. That's um, right. What, so go ahead, there was please. a question I didn't answer because I answered a, a secondary question. You asked what percent of the officers that we found were posting yes. content like this. Mm-hmm. And for the current officers that we found... Uh, it was just about 20%. So you're looking at 20% of 20%. Um, And we also included content from officers who had previously worked at these departments but no longer did. Um, The number is higher for those officers who could be retired or could have moved departments. It was more like 25% of them had posted content that met our criteria. I see. So overall, 4 or 5% of the either current or former officers. And I think people might wonder about former officers being included, but if the stuff is still out there and visible to the public and the folks are still identified with the department as a former officer, that was enough to include it? Yes. Okay. So um, people will, of course, be able to look at this for themselves. You can go to the link on the website uh, for criminal injustice. You can find it there. But uh, describe to us uh, what some of these posts that you identified uh, look like or what they say. And, you know, a warning to everybody, this stuff may offend you, but that's kind of what this is all about. Go ahead. Sure. So many of the posts were violent. We found officers encouraging or cheering brutality against protesters, people of color, uh, other minority groups. 
In Philadelphia, several officers made reference to temple turbans, which is a phrase that some officers apparently use to describe the head of a victim of brutality after it's been bandaged up at Temple Hospital. So there were often graphic and very disturbing um, violent fantasies or conversations about police violence. There was also a lot of endorsement and glorification of civilian vigilante violence. So you would see officers encouraging civilians to take the law into their own hands by, for example, shooting someone that they think is looting or running over protesters. We also then saw a lot of content that wasn't violent on its face, but seemed to uh, discriminate against a certain group of people. We saw a startling amount of Islamophobic content in the database, a lot of content that was both Islamophobic and violent, uh, advocating violence against Muslims, violence against immigrants. Um, We also saw a lot of Confederate flag imagery. We saw a lot of imagery uh, endorsing the or identifying with the Marvel character, the Punisher, who is a, an anti-hero uh, or a, or a supervillain, bad cop who goes evil and tortures his uh, victims. And while I certainly don't have anything against Marvel Comics, uh, no. the Marvel Comics writer who created the Punisher character has come out and condemned law enforcement officers identifying with the Punisher and said it's akin to embracing the Confederate flag. So obviously that association was problematic, too. We also saw associations with extremist or militarist groups. So the three percenters and the Oath Keepers are both um, extremist civilian militia groups. Mm -hmm. And we saw numerous officers uh, professing their identification with or membership in groups like that. Yes, I noticed a lot of, having gone through the database myself, a lot of uh, times that the comments uh, objectified uh, uh, particular people, particularly people of color, uh, lots of calling them animals and uh, um, lower life forms. I mean, that uh, just to be yes. very general. I think there's a real smorgasbord of uh, references to uh, both police and civilian violence as uh, an acceptable, even encouraged thing. There would often be a picture of a person who'd been apprehended for a crime, maybe a particularly heinous crime, and lots of comments in which uh, the thrust seemed to be, yeah, this guy shouldn't be arrested, he should end up dead before that. Yes, and that was, of course, very troubling as a former Capitol habeas attorney because these officers are dispatched to uh, try to apprehend and then bring to the justice system People who were accused of, of terrible crimes, cop-killing crimes, mass-killing crimes, those people are entitled to due process. And if we have officers professing their hope that alleged criminal suspects should be uh, given vigilante justice by cop rather than the process that is enshrined in the Constitution and that cops must uphold, that's deeply problematic.
Let's take a quick break here. We're with Emily Baker-White. She's an attorney and she is the founder of the Plainview Project. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Eyewitness testimony, confessions, fingerprints and forensics, all tools police and prosecutors rely on to put people in jail. But the research says these methods are far less reliable than we've been led to believe. In his 2012 book, Failed Evidence, Why Law Enforcement Resists Science, David Harris explores the myths and misconceptions surrounding high-tech policing and explains why they persist. To get your free copy of the book, become a Criminal Injustice member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice right now. We're celebrating our Patreon launch by giving away signed copies of Failed Evidence to the first 100 listeners who will commit to a monthly donation of $5 or more. But there are only 100 copies of the book up for grabs, and when they're gone, they're gone. So go to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice to claim yours now. All it takes is 5 bucks a month, and you'll be doing your part to support the show. Again, it's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash criminal injustice. Or just look for the Become a Patron button on our website at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Hi, everyone. We're back. It's Criminal Injustice, and our guest on this episode is Emily Baker-White. She is an attorney and the founder of the Plainview Project. There's a link to the project up on our website, and the project has put together a collection of offensive social media posts by police officers from eight cities around the country. Emily, before the break, we were talking about the content of these posts. Uh, What kind of reaction, uh, now that this is out in the public eye, Uh, What kind of reaction are you hearing from these eight police departments or from other police departments uh, where the the problem might also be surfacing? Police departments have taken this extremely seriously so far. um, In St. Louis, officers have been added to an exclusion list, meaning that district attorneys will not call them as witnesses or will only call them as witnesses in, in certain circumstances. Ah, the do not call list. Yes, it's not quite a do not call list uh, because there, of course, are, are officers that they will call just with conditions. But yes, there has been um, connection to a do not call list in, in St. Louis. There have also been uh, many officers placed on administrative duty while investigations into their social media conduct conduct take place. And what kind of reactions have you heard from communities uh, where these police departments are located? I understand that in both Philadelphia and St. Louis there were protests. I do not know a whole lot about what happened there. I understand that they were peaceful. I see. I can easily imagine police officers or their unions or professional organizations saying, you know, that's a pretty small sample of people you looked at. And then the where you found actual offensive posts, it's even smaller. Uh, you're blowing this way out of proportion. Uh, maybe the problem is just with a few of our officers. Sure. So, first of all, I think for many of these posts, we should look at them and say even one instance of a statement like this is too many. Many of these statements are endorsing violence, uh, endorsing racism, and we can't have that in our police forces. But I also can't see the posts in this database 
as a series of individual statements at this point. The database has just over 5,000 images in it of public Facebook posts and the comment threads beneath them. I see those posts and comments as part of a larger narrative that exists in American policing, one that at times encourages violence, endorses vigilantism, and discriminates against minority communities. Now, obviously, these posts are just a snapshot of statements from a few police departments, but we found 3,611 police officers on Facebook. And of those, 20% of current and nearly 25% of former officers were posting something like this. So, again, these are only public posts, only posts on Facebook, and only posts by officers that we were able to verify. I fear it's the tip of an iceberg, and I fear that if we had, for example, looked in private groups, or if we had friend-requested people and then looked at the content that they share only with their friends, we would have found more of this. I see. So it's a, it's a symptom of a larger problem, and at the very least, it maybe should prompt other police departments to look at social media use uh, by their officers to see what else is out there. Now, we do have to ask this question. Are, we're not talking about uh, First Amendment censorship questions, are we? No. So, of course, uh, everyone has a First Amendment right to say nearly anything they want unless they're directly inciting violence. And uh, people are entitled to be free from government prosecution for making horrible, violent, uh, or, or racist comments. On and this Facebook. includes public employees? It does. However, freedom of speech doesn't necessarily mean freedom from the consequences of that speech. And so where, as certainly in some of these cases, an officer's statement might affect the police department's ability to protect the public. Police departments do have some right to regulate the off-duty speech of their employees. So that is a, uh, another way of saying, I suppose, that, uh, fine, you have, a, you have a right to express yourself, even in ways that others might find offensive, but uh, if it interferes with the mission of the organization, that may be something else. That's right. It sort of it it only becomes the employer, the government employer's business. What you're saying on Facebook, if it starts to affect the government employer's ability to do its very important job. Have you have you had anybody say to you that these posts are are really not to be taken fully seriously? They're just a way of say blowing off steam for people who are in a very difficult pressure packed job, or maybe just jokes. Sure, and. I hope some of them are just people blowing off steam, people using language they might regret. I hope people don't really feel this way. However, even if you're just blowing off steam, if you are out there on a public forum making a comment about police brutality or what you would like to have happen to a suspect, someone else might see that and choose not to pick up the phone and call 911 when they have an emergency because they worry that the police officer who responds won't be in their corner because they look different or come from a different place or pray differently than that officer. And that's a serious concern, isn't it? I mean, this is the kind of thing that can drive a real wedge between police and the people they're supposed to serve. 
Uh, and, you know, this, this kind of hits at the heart of a lot of the work I've done over the years uh, in order to have real public safety, to have good places to live and work and exist. We have to have police and communities on the same page. Uh, I'm not trying to sing kumbaya here, but uh, look, I'm not the first or the only or the last one to say this. And if you have them, uh, people and police divided sharply, uh, you will have problems. Uh, And this at least has the potential to do that, does it not? Absolutely. Yeah. So as you go forward, as you look forward, what is ahead for the Plainview Project? Do you plan to go deeper into this, uh, spread your surveys deeper, or have you just decided you'll put this out there and see how departments react to it? We have no immediate plans to look at more jurisdictions, though we won't rule anything out. Um, At this point, I have been in contact with Several internal affairs departments were trying to make all of this information as easy for them to go through as possible. Um, And we are awaiting more responses from police departments as they sift through this information. Have you found uh, so far that uh, any of this information that's out there has had any impact on active cases? Has it influenced the processing of cases in which some of these officers might be witnesses? I think the... um, the placement of several of these officers on on the exclusion list in St. Louis indicates that uh, perhaps immediately there will be cases implicated there. Right. And when we say the exclusion list, again, we did a little feature on this. This is where the district attorney uh, might be uh, hesitant or ban what uh, or ban entirely the calling of this police officer as a witness because of something in the police officer's background. Um, if you were acting right now, as an advisor to a police department, legal advisor, policy advisor, what kind of advice would you give of uh, the police chief or the mayor right now? I would tell them to look hard at the database. I would tell them to match up. There is a lot of information that police departments have about these officers that I don't. And so when people ask me, should these officers be fired, should they be punished, et cetera. My answer to that is always going to be police departments know far more about these officers than we do. We only have their public Facebook posts. But police departments have a lot more than that. And I would hope that they will dig deep into the database and into everything else that they know about their officers and use all of that information to, yes, hold officers accountable, but but more than that, to create cultural change. I think in some of these posts and and the comment threads beneath them, you see a sort of culture of piling on where officers seem encouraged to use ever more dramatic, ever more problematic language by their friends, both civilians and other police officers. And I would like to see that feedback loop disrupted. And I would like to see a culture within police departments where if someone does make a comment like this, Their fellow officers will say, whoa, man, that's not cool. That's not who we are, rather than feeling like they have to one-up the initial statement with a more violent or more dramatic or more prejudicial comment. You know, I wonder about something. You know, we had a guest on here of some episodes back, Jamie Calvin of the Invisible Institute in Chicago. They've created uh, a a wide and deep uh, transparency database 
about uh, uh, civilian complaints and uh, internal discipline for Chicago police officers. And one of the things they found that really surprised them is that the frequent users of this database are other police officers and even police commanders who want more information about the people under their command or the folks they're going to work with. I wonder if that could be happening here, too. I hope it is. It sounds like a very good use of the database. That's Emily Baker White. She is the founder of the Plainview Project. She's in Philadelphia. The link to the Plainview Project is up on our website. Thanks for being my guest on Criminal Injustice. Thank you very much. Let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Judicial Branch. This story of Lawyers Behaving Badly comes to us from the Chicago Sun-Times, and it concerns former judge, I mean reappointed judge, which I guess means former, former judge, Michael Gerber in Cook County, Illinois. Here's what happened. After 33 years as a Cook County prosecutor, Michael Gerber was appointed to fill a vacancy on the Cook County Circuit Court. That's the trial court when another judge retired in 2018. When he was on the bench, Mr. Gerber decided to run for the office to get a term in his own right through election. But before the primary election, a case that Gerber had prosecuted was reversed by an Illinois appeals court. It seemed, said the appeals court, that Gerber and his co-prosecutor in the case had engaged in conduct that, quote, amounted to a purposeful due process violation, close quote, by purposely stating that the police had found a crucial piece of evidence, a gas can used to start an arson fire, based on information that the defendant gave police. In fact, a police detective testifying in an earlier trial said he had found the gas can based on other unrelated information. The misstatement by Gerber and his co-counsel tied the defendant more closely to the crime, so the appeals court threw the verdict out. Cook County voters then had their say on Judge Gerber in the primary. He was defeated. That was the end of that brief judicial career. And good thing, too, because after the primary defeat, in a totally separate case, another court threw out another verdict that Prosecutor Gerber had gotten. The court described the prosecution's evidence in that case as overwhelmingly implausible. The court said that, in fact, quote, the evidence convincingly shows, close quote, that the defendant was innocent. Perhaps those weak facts on his side is what pointed Prosecutor Gerber away from arguing the facts of his case. Instead, he went whole hog to try to ride emotion to victory. The appeals court quoted Gerber as telling the jury, quote, If you don't think justice was the intent of the police department, find this killer not guilty and let him back out on the streets. It's an outrage. It's an absolute outrage. Close quote. Yeah, that second reversal happened after Gerber had been defeated in the election. So at least there was that, right? He wouldn't be a judge making egregious mistakes leading to wrongful convictions. 
But wait, like those late-night TV commercials say, wait, there's more. Because former Judge Michael Gerber wasn't the only one here behaving badly. The same was true of a committee headed by attorney Kevin Ford. That committee, formed by the Illinois Supreme Court, appointed former Judge Gerber to be a judge again, appointing him to fill a vacancy created by another retirement. That's right. A prosecutor called out for significant misconduct not once, but twice, at least one instance of which put an innocent person in jail defeated by the voters. Which is, by the way, pretty hard to do in Cook County and most places that elect judges. That guy was just reappointed to sit in judgment of fellow citizens in Cook County, said attorney Ford, who headed the committee, he and the committee members found the reappointment of Gerber, quote, non-controversial. Yes, well, sure thing, as long as you don't call being defeated for a seat on the same court and putting innocent people in jail controversial. There's only one thing that Judge Gerber must do to make the circle complete. He needs to run again for a seat on the court. Wow, a major do-over that would be. The people of Cook County are very forgiving, I'm sure. That wraps up another session of Lawyers Behaving Badly and another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already and share us all over social media. Check out our website, criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Well, just call in and ask Dave. Call 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. Also, give us some contact information, but we won't share that with anyone. Again, 412-407-3389. Thanks for listening. I am David Harris. Back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris, produced by Josh Rollerson, and supported by listener contributions. Go to patreon.com slash criminal injustice to become a member and access the premium content feed. Find past episodes, show notes, and more at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Urban violence kills thousands of Americans every year. It accounts for almost three quarters of the murders in the United States, and it traps a huge number of people in poverty, trauma, and despair. What if there was a way to cut murderous urban violence by half? Hitting back at urban violence, that's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. 